if you're getting a headache over all this and saying, how can we possibly have a funding system for medical care like this that has so many injustices and unevennesses and loopholes, think about single payer. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage Podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryant, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, have I ever told you that I used to live overseas? I spent one year uh, living and teaching in Turkey, I and my wife, and then we spent two years living and working in Japan. Yeah, you have mentioned that. And there were times when I needed to see a doctor when I lived in those places. And on those occasions would go to a doctor, I would be seen, and I would receive whatever I needed to receive. Uh, boy, I sprained my ankle really badly playing basketball in Japan. And I needed an x-ray and I needed crutches when I left the doctor's office. And um, do you know what never came up in those doctor visits? Money. Correct. I never encountered anything like a cashier or anything like a statement from insurance, a bill, anything of the like. I needed treatment. I got treatment and I walked away. And that was the last I ever had to think about it. And when we were preparing to talk about health insurance terms and the ACA, and we're going to continue this conversation on all of these terms, I was thinking about that, how in many places around the world, we don't really need to know these terms. We just go see the doctor when we need to see the doctor, and we don't have to worry about how insurance works and what all the different terms are and what vocabulary we need to use when we get them on the phone. All of that stuff is just out the window. We just see the doctor and move on with our lives. During the debate on the ACA, there was a lot of people being concerned that foreigners should not be able to come into our country and take advantage of our medical system and <laughs> get their care paid for. And I thought, boy, it'll be a long time before foreigners have managed to get as much money out of us as we tourists have gotten out of them. Um, my wife and I have both been treated medically in Europe in various countries for nothing or for a very minimal charge. And I had one experience where we were in this little Spanish village walking over rough cobblestones in my Birkenstocks, and I stubbed my toe and really tore my toenail quite badly. It was bleeding. And, and we walked by this uh, little podiatrist's office, which just seemed like an incredible coincidence, particularly in such a small town. Um, it was all dark. This was midday hot, hot Spanish day. And so I thought, well, it's siesta time, but we went in and there, yeah, there was a, a young woman who was the doctor, the podiatrist there, and we could speak very little Spanish and could sort of understand what she was saying, but she didn't have any English at all, but I showed her my toe and she set to work on it and uh, was incredibly careful about trying not to hurt me and clean up the wound and then telling me how to take care of it. Um, one of the results of all of that being my soaking the toe in a series of bidets and 
hotel rooms and travel. They got to be good for something, right? <laughs> but um, then I asked how much, and she just waved her hand. You know, what, what a question. Of course, there's no charge. And we went on our way. Oh, my gosh. You know, and really superior medical care. Right. And emergency care. No waiting. You know, that's the kind of uh, state-operated health care nightmare that I could live with pretty happily. Right. I, I don't really mind living under the tyranny <laughs> of being able to see the doctor when you really need to without worrying about all of these terms. But as it stands here right now, we do need to worry about all of these terms, and we are deeply involved in a political situation here trying to get to the point where I hope most people here in this country are on board with trying to get to the place of having more coverage with less overall expense for all of us. Um, so let's talk about some of these terms that came along in the Affordable Care Act, the ACA debate. One of them was the individual mandate. Yes. This is one that is really hot right now. Why is that? What is that? Let's talk about that. Okay. Well, first off, this has nothing to do with Grinder. Grinder. Okay. <laughs> um, but it, it sounds like something that individuals are being targeted individually, but actually it's the universal mandate. It's telling everybody has to have some kind of insurance. Either your employer pays for it, it's paid for out of tax revenues, or you pay for it out of your own income. Uh, so that has not been the case in the United States before the Affordable Care Act. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the things that was most fiercely challenged by its opponents. And it continues to be the thing that most people hate when people criticize it and say, well, the first thing we've got to do is get rid of this wretched individual mandate. If I don't want insurance, I shouldn't have to buy it. Unfortunately, it is the essential keystone that makes the whole system work. We talked in the beginning about how insurance is a way of spreading out risk. And the wider the pool of people covered by an insurance system is, the lower the cost can be for any individuals. And so your risk of getting an injury or an illness that is catastrophic is greatly minimized if you can spread the risk widely enough. And the widest of all, of course, is universal. If people are allowed to opt out, and not carry insurance, go bare, as they say, then prices begin to rise because it's the people who feel they are at most risk for insurance who have to pay for it. Or people who have a lot of money say, um, I could pay for all of my stuff out of pocket. I don't really need to spend this extra money on insurance. If they're not covered in the pool, that also shrinks the pool. So you wind with people who are less well off and less healthy being the ones who are buying the insurance. And as that happens, the price for insurance naturally has to go up to cover their medical costs. As that price goes up, more and more of those low-income people begin to drop out and say, okay, I just, I can't afford this anymore. And that's what is called in the criticism, the death spiral. Mm -hmm. If people start opting out of the system and not paying for their insurance, then the system becomes unaffordable ultimately. So the keystone that keeps it all working and keeps it flowing is the individual mandate. 
Now, it makes it sound, and the critics make it sound, as if all these poor people are out there having to uh, eat only once a week so they can pay for their health insurance. The part of the ACA was to use public funds through Medicaid to cover those people who can't buy their own insurance because they can't afford it. So the people that are being targeted by these politicians who talk about you shouldn't have to be burdened with the individual mandate are really addressing mostly people who could afford insurance but prefer not to pay it. And sometimes it can be a pretty rough expense. And I can understand it's a burden. Mm -hmm. But the individual mandate really is crucial for a system that's going to work in the way that we're aiming at to get everybody coverage. And if you take your points to a logical conclusion, it would make sense for the individual mandate to be vigorously enforced. Now, there is a tax penalty if you don't carry health insurance. Right. But that is anything but vigorously enforced. Well, the Trump administration has announced they're not going to enforce it. Yes, they've just made it official. It's like uh, smoking a marijuana cigarette in Berkeley for the last 50 years. (laughs) They actually took some of the money that had been budgeted for publicity, reminding people that they need to buy insurance and used it instead to make ads against the system. Mm -hmm. So uh, in this current construct, with the individual mandate not vigorously enforced, that really does ensure that the system cannot work. So. Uh, what you're saying is that the individual mandate is really integral to the whole system. It cannot be disposed of and expect to lower costs for everybody. Right. And often people point out in the arguments that uh, if you own a car, you have to buy auto insurance, whether you feel like it or not, whether you think you'll get in a wreck or not. Mm-hmm. Now, it's true, there are different levels, and what the ACA does is prescribe a minimum level of insurance you have to have so that you can't have something that calls itself insurance but that you'd almost never get. It's like, you know, uh, double indemnity insurance. If you get murdered, your heirs get more money. It's just a gamble. That's not insurance. And um, home insurance, same thing. If you're taking out a a loan on your house, you have to buy homeowner's insurance. People say, okay, but you could choose not to buy a house. You could choose not to buy a car, but you can't choose not to be a potential patient. Mm -hmm. So the individual mandate is a little bit different. But the way it functions economically is the same in that it's a matter of spreading the risk. Right, right. And this leads right into a discussion of a high-risk pool, because if people are opting out of insurance, that starts to create what we might call a high-risk pool. Well, that's actually a legal term that is used. High-risk pools have existed for some time in several states, and what the Republicans are doing is arguing that they should be greatly expanded and doing away with the expanded Medicaid that we have instead. What you do is say, okay, We'll have some reasonably priced insurance for the average person who isn't expected to have a lot of high medical expenses. And those people who have chronic illnesses or who are elderly or for in hazardous occupations or whatever, they could join at more expense. So they could buy insurance in a high risk pool. And some of that would be subsidized by state government or the federal government. The problem is the only way this saves money to the taxpayers overall is if it costs the people in the pool more 
than what the ACA covers. The cost of insurance would skyrocket for those people, even with subsidies. And it is in no way a saving for the system as a whole. It's just a saving for the non-sick, non-injured individuals and for the budget as a whole. So it's one of these shell games where you push things around and you're making the sick people pay more, making poor people pay more. It flies in the face of insurance, the concept of insurance. Right. Because insurance is based on this idea that you spread widely the expense uh, so that people who are actually needing to use the insurance are able to pay less for their services than people who don't need those services but are still participating in the insurance should the time come that they need to take advantage of having the benefit. And the car insurance analogy breaks down because when you talk about high-risk pools, uh, you say, well, you could always choose to not have a car, but of course you can't choose to not have a body. <laughs> but but not only that, car insurance companies create their own little high-risk pools where, you know, if you have a lot of speeding tickets or a lot of accidents, they can raise your insurance rates uh, to the point where you could decide to continue paying those high insurance rates or you could just decide to slow down and not get any more speeding tickets which would be the smart maneuver if you're trying to save money on your insurance. However, uh, your body is not a car, and you are not a driver of your body in the sense that you can't always control your health conditions. You can adjust your diet. That will limit your risk of heart disease and cancer and so on. But there are other health conditions that might be genetic or might be brought on by environmental conditions that you cannot possibly control. And the blame cannot be put entirely on you for being thrown into this high-risk pool. I think there's this assumption in people who say, well, we just need more high-risk pools. Well, that does not take into account that people are not controlling their destiny in that way when it comes to health. Right. Although it's interesting, our insurance company has something could be called a low risk pools in which you can be charged less for your insurance if you meet certain requirements like being able to run a mile at a certain pace. Mm. They used to have a quiz that you took once a year about, you know, have you had a checkup? Had you uh, got X amount of exercise and so on? Then they'd send you a little check for like $50 as a refund for Keeping well. So it was a way of encouraging wellness uh, that we were talking about earlier. But uh, I think that's fairly benign, although it does dilute the idea of the pool. But these high risk pools are just vicious. There's just saying for people who are more concerned with keeping taxes low uh, than they are about keeping medical expenses low. Yes. What you're describing could be fairly benign if it's done on a very limited level. Oh, here's a $50 refund. Well, everybody would like a $50 refund. That is in no way comparable to the amount of extra expense that is created by these high risk pools for the people who, uh, you know, unfortunately need to be put into them. That's a very large amount of money. Um, let's talk a little bit about how the ACA dealt with Medicaid. But before we do that, we should talk a little bit about Medicaid versus Medicare. I think the reason they're so confusing is that they sound almost the same, but they're just two different systems. So Medicare and Medicaid are really different. Medicare is the insurance plan for people over 65 who've worked at least 10 years at a job in which they and their employers pay Medicare taxes. 
So you're paying your Medicare premiums when you're working and you collect the Medicare benefits when you retire. But there's a lot of misconceptions about Medicare. Um, one thing is that it often gets bundled together in people's minds with Social Security. There was a time when it was traditional to get Social Security at age 65 and Medicare at age 65. No longer true. They keep raising the age for Social Security to get full benefits. And you can also get early Social Security at age 62 if you're willing to surrender a good deal. And every advisor I've ever seen says, don't do that because you wind up with a lot less help with your insurance over the rest of your life. But there are many people who have to or have some financial crunch where that's the only thing that they can manage to do. So the main thing for people approaching age 65 is not to get it in your head that this is all going to come as a bundle. They're really two different things. And you need to sign up for Social Security benefits and you need to do it fairly promptly, by the way. And you also need to sign up for Medicare Right. And they are like one another in that they are both insurance programs. Some people think of Social Security as a retirement program. If it is a retirement program, it's more like a pension fund that will pay you until the time you die, regardless of how much money you have paid into Social Security. And it can also pay your spouse after you've died. There are widows and widower benefits. That's right. Yeah. And they, we can't forget about that. But uh it's going to be something that pays you regardless of how long you live. This is a sort of a cynical way of looking at it. It's like longevity insurance to make sure that you don't run out of retirement funds entirely. <laughs> However, most people have some kind of individual retirement plan that's a supplement to that. And that will deplete itself if you live too long and take too much out of it. But they both work like insurance programs. But Medicare is an insurance program. I think people really understand that much more clearly. Yeah, and Medicare is not a free thing. The foes of this sort of thing like to call them entitlements. And I think it's really unfortunate that even their supporters have adopted that language, which is extremely distorted because these people are just acting as if they're entitled. Well, they're entitled because they paid for it. <laughs> right. When you buy a new iPhone, you're entitled to have an iPhone, aren't you? Right. Nobody calls your iPhone that you paid for an entitlement. Right. Jeez, get with it. And the other thing that we often hear is that Medicare is going bankrupt. People talk about Social Security in the same way. In Congress, uh, Republicans in particular are very fond of referring to both of these programs as a Ponzi scheme because their expenses are outrunning the income that's provided for them, that somehow the whole thing needs to be abolished when, in fact, all they need to do is correct the balance by making sure that enough is paid in. Uh, but they don't want to do that. They don't want to raise the taxes so that Medicare is fully funded. It's partly a problem because people who are of the baby boom generation are beginning to retire and they need the Medicare benefits and there's not enough young workers right now paying in enough to cover all of their needs. But it's not going bankrupt. The idea is in the quite near future, people argue there'll be nothing left and they'll be broke. And without going into all the details about how it's funded, um, it's been calculated that by 2024, 
if none of these problems are addressed, Medicare would still cover 87% of anticipated expenses, and by 2050, it would cover 67%. That's not nothing. It's not like uh, all of a sudden in a decade or so we're going to open this treasure chest and find that all the gold has been stolen by the pirates and we've got nothing. Uh, it's simply that you have to tighten your belt or we have to lower medical expenses or the government has to do something supplemental. Um, it's not that these are being paid down to zero. And that's the impression that the foes of these programs try to give. And it's completely misleading. The foes are simply trying to shut the program down entirely. Right. Like today, this week, because don't you see it's running out of money. Um, the fact that it's not going entirely broke is not really a factor in that argument. And neither is the factor that we're talking about 2050. Last time I looked, that was 33 years away. So many factors can come into play within 33 years that we don't actually even know if that is an accurate figure or not. It is a best guess, and a lot of sophisticated minds have put their heads to it and come up with that figure, so we can trust it generally. But it's just being waved around like, look, it's much worse coverage. It's one-third less coverage than we're getting right now. Well, there are a lot of things that can be done between now and then that can adjust that. And, you know, there could even be new technologies that make that one third uh, look more like one fifth or something like that. It's really uh, uh, very misleading to point to that and say, look, this is a broken system entirely. It isn't. One of the things that even conservatives could get in back of is increased enforcement against Medicare fraud. There are a lot of these uh, sleazy medical centers who have gone out and gotten retirees to sign up for Medicare and then charge Medicare for huge amounts. There have been quite a few in the newspaper or in the news lately. And some of them have been caught, and the more policing would be really good. Unfortunately, conservatives also tend to cut back on the enforcement of pursuit of fraudulent behavior, and that makes it harder to do. Medicare is not going bankrupt. That's extremely misleading to say that. And in the case of Social Security, it has been pointed out time and again that people who earn more than $127,200 right now stop paying into Social Security after that point out of their paychecks. So if you're a very high earner, everything that you earn above 127200 I don't, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm also not in that category. <laughs> yeah, not me. However, I would like to think that if I were earning that much money, I wouldn't mind continuing to pay into Social Security beyond that point. It's really for the, the greater good. I think it makes a better society when older citizens are not going broke or having to worry about having to pay for their basic expenses. And we could completely eliminate any problems with funding Social Security that would be foreseeable simply by raising the limit on taxable income to pay into Social Security. And that's something that a lot of politicians have campaigned on, including Hillary Clinton. Right. Exactly. And she won by three million votes. Yes. <laughs> right. Uh. 
Now, one of the big problems with Medicare and Social Security both is that because there's all this bad mouthing of them and saying that they're going bankrupt and so on, is that there's a whole generation of young people who have grown up thinking that those benefits are not going to be there for them when they retire. So they shouldn't be concerned with them. So they're not going to vote in favor of anything that would maintain them. But also, many of them are opting out of the parts of the economy that fund those programs. Uh, one of the things is if you take an informal job, uh, whether it's fixing up houses, cleaning houses, child care, all kinds of things you can do as independent, especially if you don't report your income to IRS, technically you are supposed to be paying independently into both Medicare and Social Security, but most of those people do not. And then they're going to get hit when they retire by not having qualified for benefits. The so-called gig economy in which people are doing very informal jobs, so they advertise through Craigslist or various other means to do work, is a huge proportion of this. And as it gets harder and harder for people to find really good jobs with benefits, um, they're often deciding, well, since I'm not getting much of a benefit at all, I'll just not worry about that. And some employers are shifting over to considering people who are really their employees to be independent contractors. And this is something that I have heard IRS is actively investigating in many cases where businesses that may take half the pay of a person who's doing a job for them uh, and the person really has no choice about that. But they will say, well, we don't pay into Social Security and Medicare. And what they should be telling these people is, but legally, you have to as individuals. But often they don't. If you're in one of these jobs, you're usually getting pretty low pay and you're just getting by. And so it's not very attractive for you to think, well, someday I will need these retirement benefits. Um, but I can't afford to pay for them out of my pocket and maybe nobody will come after me. There are some cases that have been reported where the IRS has noted that this employer that you're an independent contractor for is actually cutting checks for you and reporting that income to IRS. And yet uh, you're not paying the Medicare and Social Security taxes. And they've gone after a few people, but not very many. That's still pretty rare, I think. So that's scary. There is this very large contingent of young people who are slipping through this hole in the system and don't realize how much they're sacrificing by doing that. Yeah, it's making them very vulnerable. And the fact that it tends to be older people who vote in larger numbers than younger people means that Social Security will not go away anytime soon. I mean, if people are receiving their Social Security benefits and they are voting, they are not going to willingly vote for politicians that are going to eliminate the program that supports them. So uh, for younger people to look at the bigger picture, they should also realize that the more you pay into the system over the years, the higher your benefit will be at the end of the road. So I think there's possibly a misunderstanding of how that part of it works, where people say, well, uh, you know, if you work enough during your life and pay into Social Security, you're there. You're, you're going to get the benefit. Well, uh, if you only kicked in, uh, you know, a very low amount and you were a lower salary earner, unfortunately, that means that in retirement, you're going to receive benefits at a lower rate than somebody who was a high earner. Yeah, because uh, my wife was employed at lower salary for a shorter time. Uh, she gets about half the Social Security benefit that I do. 
Right. And I don't think young people really understand that. I heard interviews with young people during the last election campaign who said uh, they were voting conservative because they didn't expect to get benefits and they didn't see why they should have to pay for these lazy baby boomers who were taking their money. Mm. And they're completely deluded. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I believe that they are. That's not going to be a benefit for you to opt out of paying into the system. Or to elect people who want to do away with it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, I think that covers Medicare pretty well. Now, the commonly confused term that people might mix up, and they're very close to one another, Medicare and Medicaid. Let's talk for a minute about Medicaid and uh, who benefits from Medicaid and this other program, this CHIP program. Let's talk about those for a minute. Medicaid is essentially for the poor. The income limit has changed at various times. It was raised under the Affordable Care Act. But people who really can't afford to pay for their own medical insurance can get Medicaid. But it's different from Medicare in that it is done through the states. Now, conservatives love to do state-oriented things because it allows the mostly conservative-dominated legislatures to rein back in. Sometimes they don't even spend the money that's been sent to them for the purposes that it was intended. Um, and it's a way of putting a chokehold on these programs, whereas the federal government might have decided through Congress to be more generous. They can be more stingy. But the language they use all has to do with suiting the needs of our citizens and letting them decide what they want to do with their money and blah, blah, blah. It's all about states' rights and so on. And as usual, states' rights, usually when it's raised, means that some entitled group wants to oppress some harder off group and want a free hand in doing so without interference from the federal government. Anyway, each state has its own Medicaid program. And so they can vary a lot. You move from one state to another, your benefits and your qualifications can change. So that's another thing that makes this system ridiculously complicated. I mean, one of the things I think we're accomplishing in this tour of subjects is if you're getting a headache over all this and saying, how can we possibly have a funding system for medical care like this that has so many injustices and unevennesses and loopholes? Think about single payer. (laughs) which we can talk about later as a solution to all this nonsense. But anyway, Medicaid is for people who are poor. It particularly, it doesn't cover everyone who's poor. It's people below a certain income level, and you can be pretty badly off in some states, still not qualify for Medicaid. Often there's not enough money to go around. And one of the things that is most important is coverage for those people who are unemployable because they're handicapped. It's often imagined by people who argue against programs like that. So it's a lot about lazy people just sitting around who don't want to go out and get a job. Well, you've got divorced women with small children, for instance, where the jobs that they can qualify for would not pay enough to even pay for the child care for the children. Um, that's a very common problem. But a very large group covered by Medicaid are people with disabilities. The blind, for instance, was the first group to be covered. And other people, and some of those people have been very involved in lobbying Congress and taking part in protests against the plans to rein in Medicaid and cut the amount that's sent to the states. That's what Congress was trying to do in their late efforts to replace what they called Obamacare, 
by saying that they would give the states less money and then the states could distribute it. Well, what they do is just toss people off the rolls and make them suffer or lower the amount that they pay for services and make the poor people pay the rest. So it's a way of insulating themselves as politicians in Washington from the direct consequences of taking health care away from individuals by saying, no, we're giving the states the right. Don't you want your individual states to have this ability to adjust things to the particular needs of your community? Uh, unfortunately, some people buy that kind of argument. Right. Yeah. And what about CHIP? Is this part of Medicaid, the CHIP program? No, that's a separate program. That goes back to Clinton's era, and it was S-CHIP originally. And that's the program that pays for poor children's health care. One of the biggest categories of people who are not covered in the past has been these children of poor parents, particularly poor single parents. And you can get all on your high horses about, well, single people shouldn't be on welfare. Uh, they shouldn't have so many kids and so on. Very frequently, it's either a widow or a divorced woman. A husband has deserted them. There are all kinds of situations in which the children are being made to pay for the things that have happened to the parents. And so CHIP was meant to fill that gap. And it's uh, been a very successful program. It was passed a huge majority under the administration Clinton, one of the very few really progressive things he ever did while he was moving the Democrats to the middle. But it's one of those things that comes under fire as well from some conservatives. And CHIP is simply Children's Health Insurance Program. It's an acronym. Right. Well, Paul, I want to talk more about Medicaid as it relates to the Affordable Care Act, this Medicaid expansion. You hit on it a little bit, but I think we need to talk about it some more next time. Okay. Thank you, Paul. So long, Tom. That's all for the podcast this week. As usual, you can send your comments and questions to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, buy the book. The Common Errors in English Usage book can be bought online at your favorite online seller at our website, wmjasco.com, with free shipping. Thanks for listening.